there's a great message in that song, and it is much in keeping with the scripture that we want to look at, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we'll read verses 1 through 8. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have believed, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. <clears throat> After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. And may God bless the reading of Holy Scripture to our hearts today. The church at Corinth had many problems. Problems which Paul had to address in this letter. And in this particular part of the letter, in this particular chapter, he addresses one of the most foundational doctrines that had come to be challenged by some. It had come to be doubted by some. Namely, the resurrection of the body of believers in Christ at the last day. Some of them had either embraced or they were tempted to embrace the idea that the eternal state for believers would be in a spirit-only capacity, not with a body. We don't know how this idea crept in. Perhaps it came from Greek philosophy. Perhaps it came from teachers that we call Gnostics. Perhaps it even came from some influence from the Sadducees who denied bodily resurrection. Whatever the case, this is a very serious error that the apostle must address, and he addresses it in quite a bit of length and detail here. <clears throat> His argument in 1 Corinthians 15, in a nutshell, amounts to this. The resurrection of our body is integrally 
and inextricably connected with the resurrection of the body of Jesus Christ, our Lord, from the tomb on the third day after his crucifixion. We are in saving union with him. We who believe in him, we who are saved by him, are in saving union with him. Which means that we die with him, we are buried with him, and we are raised up again with him. And the implications of his resurrection settle the dispute about the resurrection of the body of believers. That's the argument here. So those who deny the bodily resurrection of believers at the last day are inescapably denying the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Christ himself. And to deny His bodily resurrection is to deny the very gospel that we profess and that we proclaim. Because his resurrection is an essential aspect of his saving work. And so in the resurrection of Christ that is emphasized and Set forth here in this chapter, we see, we see it as not only a gospel cornerstone, but we see it also as a vital argument and, and a convincing argument for the resurrection of the body of believers when Christ comes at the last day. So that's the setting in the context here. The apostle makes much of the resurrection of Christ here, and rightly so. Truly, every Lord's day underscores in our heart the resurrection of Christ We worship him on the first day of the week. That's the day he arose. That's the day that an empty tomb was discovered. And we thank God that not just once a year at this time, but 52 times a year at the beginning of every week, we have this Reminder, we are confronted with the reality of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And it should also be a reminder to us of our resurrection also. And and of all who are in Christ who are asleep in the grave, as we say, when he comes again. Now... You notice he says here in verse 4 that Christ rose again the third day according to the scriptures. When he says the scriptures here, he's referring to our Old Testament, 
Where is the resurrection of Christ in the Old Testament? Well, let me give you some examples. And some of these are quoted in other passages of the New Testament. And so we know that that the resurrection is in view here. Take, for example, Psalm 2-7. Thou art my son, the Father says to the Son. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And that verse is quoted in one place in the New Testament in connection with resurrection, the begetting that occurred at resurrection. Furthermore, Psalm 16 and verse 10 is also quoted in the New Testament. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell or in the grave, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. No, his body didn't decay. It was raised up in a new and glorious body. Think also of the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. According to the scriptures, it says here that his days would be prolonged. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. There, there is a hint, more than a hint of resurrection. His days being prolonged. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Well, what good does an inheritance do to one who is dead? No, it it implied here is that he would rise again, and live again, and enjoy this portion or this inheritance. We have, according to the scriptures, in Hosea chapter 6 and verse 2, verses 1 and 2, Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn and he will heal us. He hath smitten and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. In the third day he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. Jesus himself pointed to Jonah and the three days and three nights in the belly of the whale as according to the scriptures, according to that symbolism that Christ himself would be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights and rise again. Peter tells us that there are many prophecies of the Old Testament regarding these things. He says that uh, these prophets inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand, what? The sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. And so all of these Old Testament references to Christ as 
a king and Christ in his glory and Christ in his exaltation all imply his resurrection from the dead after his suffering. And it would take all day to turn and read all of those kinds of prophecies. And so the resurrection of Christ was promised and prophesied and foreshadowed and symbolized all through the Old Testament. And so I want to say this to those who are lost. You must believe in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. Believing in these things is is the, the very essence of faith. Trusting your soul to Him in the work that He did to redeem you and save you from your sins. This is the essence of faith. And I want to ask you today, do you believe it? Do you believe in Him? Do you rest upon Him? That's the great question that every one of us must face. But in the time that remains here, I want to point out an interesting detail from this chapter. And it begins in verse 1. And it really centers around verse 1. Let's read it again. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. Here is Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, writing under inspiration of God. And he's writing to those that he calls brethren, He described them back in chapter 1 as them that are sanctified in Christ. He's not writing this to unbelievers. He's writing this to believers. And he says, I declare unto you the gospel. I declare unto you the message of salvation, the good news of Christ. Again, notice. They are already brethren. He's not trying to convert them so that they will become brethren in Christ, children of God in a saving way. They are already in that state. He goes on to say that he has already preached the gospel to them in person when he was there in Corinth. Though he's writing it in a letter now from another location, he is, he, he says that he had already preached it there to them in person. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. <coughs> And again, he underscores that they had already believed the gospel, which also ye have received. They had taken it in. They had taken it to heart. In other words, they had believed it. And he says, you're standing in it now. Your whole standing is in the gospel. Literally, 
in which ye have stood. Their whole position had changed. They are in a right standing with God now because of the gospel and because of Jesus Christ. So, why did Paul declare the gospel to these people who already had heard it, had already believed it, and were living in the joy and in the light of it? It's really an interesting thing. We know that there's nothing in the word of God that is unnecessary. Everything is here for a purpose. And if Paul declared the gospel in letter form here to the Corinthians, no doubt they needed to hear it again. And certainly to advance the argument about the resurrection of our body at the last day, they needed to hear the gospel again. That brings me then to this conclusion. As believers in Christ today, we also need to hear the gospel. And we need to hear it again and again. If the saints at Corinth who had heard it and believed it and were standing in it, needed to hear it again, so also do we today. And that is why we declare the gospel here from this pulpit over and over again. I hope that it is at least 52 times a year. This whole approach is quite different from the thought that is common today. What is common today is hear the gospel once, you make a decision, you pray the sinner's prayer, you get instant assurance of salvation. And it's all done. It's over with. We could say, you've been there and done that. You had a moment of faith, supposedly. Some would take it a step further and say, now from that point forward, The only thing you need is to be discipled in the Christian life. You need to be taught all of the word of God, but you really don't need to hear the gospel again because you've already heard that, you've already believed it. And there is quite a debate in some circles about whether the gospel should be preached in a church service at all. They say, gospel work, presenting the gospel to the lost is something that should be done on Monday and Tuesday and and all during the week. But the gathering 
on the Lord's day is for the people of God. It is for believers. It is for those who have already heard and believed the gospel and who now stand in the gospel. And therefore, they do not preach the gospel from their pulpits. They have what they call a teaching ministry, but not an evangelistic ministry. As if hearing it once, as if hearing the gospel once might be enough. Or as if hearing it over and over again, you might get tired of it. Well, we certainly agree that there ought to be in-depth instruction for believers in the doctrines of Scripture and the deep things of God and all that is revealed in Holy Scripture. But I am firmly convinced that we ought to follow the example of God's Word in a passage like 1 Corinthians 15 and declare the gospel to the brethren and to the sisters in Christ. And we should do it over and over again and often. And in any season of revival in church history, this is what we see. Mr. Spurgeon preached the gospel every week. Others in whom we admire and read after have had the same gospel emphasis. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones comes to mind. He was insistent that one church service per week should be an evangelistic service. Some continue that to this day. I think of... Uh, Peter Masters at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, and many, many others. Not only do the unconverted need to hear the gospel, but those who are converted need to hear the gospel. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. I've already preached it to you. You've already heard it. You've already believed it. You are standing fast in it. But you need to hear it again. There is a a very interesting story that Martin Lloyd-Jones told. He was on a sabbatical and was going to be preaching in another pulpit for, I think, a couple of months. And... He, in the first service that he was there in, in this other city, in this other church, announced that his custom was to preach to believers in the morning service on the Lord's Day and then in the evening service to preach to unbelievers. So as the first service concluded that morning, a lady walks past him and shakes his hand and says, well, I'm already a believer, so I suppose I don't need to come back tonight. And he was very passionate with her and said, I urge you to come back this evening just the same. Because the lady had made up her mind she wasn't going to come. 
She already knew the gospel. At the close of the evening service, as she left, she shook his hand again and she said, I needed to hear that message. And I will be coming on Sunday nights as well as Sunday morning for the next two months. We all need to hear the gospel again and again. And it it grieves my heart to think of how many places that are called churches today do everything but preach the gospel. You wonder sometimes if they know what the gospel is. If they could give a clear, simple definition of the gospel. They seem to assume that everyone already knows it. And you cannot help but wonder if they really have a gospel to preach at all. Instead, they offer entertainment and a stirring of the emotions with music and other stimuli. They offer self-help and moral lessons. And they, of course, mention the name of Jesus in connection with it to make it sound legitimate. But I am afraid that what we read of in the book of Amos is true today, where God warned Israel of a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. There would not be any prophetic voice there in that time because it would be a judgment upon them for their sin. And is there not a similar famine today? A spiritual famine, a famine for hearing the word of God. Does it not behoove then those who have the gospel to make much of it and to sound it forth again and again, to declare it and to do so frequently. So I want to give some reasons from this chapter why believers need to hear the gospel often. <clears throat> We've already hinted at, at some of this, but let's look at it in, in order here. <clears throat> We need to hear the gospel. Believers need to hear the gospel often because it will make us appreciate what we have already believed and received. That's verse 1. <clears throat> Look at where you already stand in Christ. And we need to be reminded frequently that we didn't get to where we are on our own. It's become kind of a political hot potato. But today people say in, in connection with other things, you didn't do that by yourself. You didn't make that by yourself. You didn't build that by yourself. Well, this we know for sure. If you're a believer in Christ, if your sins are forgiven, if you're covered with His righteousness and His perfection, 
in the sight of God. You didn't get there by yourself. And every time that we hear the gospel, it's a reminder to us of what God has done for us. We have it perhaps in a more visible way, tangible reminder in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. We do this in remembrance of Him. And we need to have that ordinance repeatedly. And the preaching of the gospel reignites our gratitude to God, our dependence upon Him. It keeps us from pride and presumption, thinking that we've done this by ourselves and on our own. Hearing the gospel often makes us worship the Lord often. Secondly, believers need to hear the gospel often so that we might continue believing. And this is found in verse 2. He says, this is the gospel by which also ye are saved. He doesn't say by which also ye were saved. This is a present tense by which also ye are saved. We could honestly translate it by which ye are being saved. We ought to appreciate the present tense aspect of our salvation. We are being delivered. We are being rescued from sin and from self and from destruction day by day. And part of the means that God uses to save us in a present tense way is the repeated hearing of the gospel. And in this sense, there is the if of verse 2, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you. The present ongoing aspect of salvation is contingent upon ongoing belief. We must keep in memory Literally, to to hold it fast, what the gospel is and who the gospel is. After all, there is such a thing, he says, as believing in vain. And we talked about that just a few weeks ago. In this context, unless ye have believed in vain, there is such a thing as believing in vain. There's temporary faith that doesn't last that doesn't stay alive, that doesn't bear fruit. We see so many like that today. True faith is a gift from God, and it is, beloved, a gift that He keeps on giving. And the way that He keeps giving us faith is by the repeated hearing of the message of salvation. We're kept by the power of God through faith. 
And faith is fed by the hearing of the gospel. God keeps us by causing us to keep Him. He holds us by enabling us to hold Him. He works in us and causes us to work, Philippians 2, 12 and 13 tell us. And so we need to hear the gospel again and again because in so doing, we renew our faith. We re-experience our conversion. It's like being saved all over again. We need to hear the gospel when we gather together on the Lord's Day. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. And the truth is, every time we hear the gospel, we're being saved by it in an ongoing way. In Armenian circles, when preachers get together, they have conversations like this. Um, How many did you... uh, have in attendance and how much was your offering and how many did you have saved? Well, the answer to that last question in light of 1 Corinthians 15 is as many believers as were present. If you have a dozen believers present, then you had a dozen people saved. Because salvation continues to be applied to us as we hear the gospel. It's a a precious perspective to keep in mind. I, I hasten on. Thirdly, we need to hear the gospel often so that we might keep focused on what is the most important thing in all the world. Namely, the transaction that occurred on the cross of Calvary when Christ died and this is laid out in just very bare outline form in verses 3 and 4 Christ died for our sins we need to focus on this beloved this is more important than anything else in life to know that Christ died for your sins That you're at peace with God through Him. That this one called Christ, the God-man, in His glorious person as a man on earth, died. Died the death of crucifixion. Died on the cross and died for our sins. He died In our place, he assumed our debt, he took our sins, took our punishment, and in his death reconciled us to God, made an atonement for our sins, satisfied divine justice concerning our sins. And it was all foretold in the Old Testament. That's another message in itself, but it was according to the Scriptures. Hearing the Gospel reminds us of His burial in the grave. 
And what's the significance of that? It means he was truly dead. There was no doubt about his death. And that he rose again the third day. Christ rose again in glory, in victory, in triumph. The tomb could not hold him. He burst asunder the bars of death, left that tomb without even moving the stone from the face of it. The angel rolled away the stone. Christ was already departed from that grave miraculously. And yes, all of this was according to the scriptures, as we said earlier. We need to hear this message again and again so that we will stay focused upon it. There's nothing better to consider. There's no other good news. All the other news from any other source is nothing but bad news. It's about man and sin and evil and war and crime and perversion. Here's good news, and we need to hear it again and again. And today, especially, we underscore the resurrection of Christ. If Christ had not risen, how would we know that he was a Savior? How would we know that his sacrifice was accepted by the Father? If he had died and been buried, and you could still go and see his grave today, I tell you, Redemption would be incomplete. There had to be a resurrection from the dead. He must rise up Lord and Savior. And at least one scripture makes it connected with justification. Romans 4.25 says he was raised again for our justification. We wouldn't be justified if he hadn't risen from the dead. The resurrection of Christ is truly a game changer, if we can say that reverently. It changes everything. We would have no glorious, victorious message to deliver if Jesus was still in the grave. But that's not the only thing that is in this outline. There's actually four points to this Gospel outline, he died, he was buried, he rose again, and verse 5, he was seen. And Paul tells of these various people and groups who saw him after his resurrection. We should not overlook this. This is very important. There were eyewitnesses. As Acts chapter 1 says, there were many infallible proofs. Of his resurrection. There's no question about the reality and the factuality of it. No honest person could ever deny the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Well, it's obvious that Paul delighted in these things. He wants to repeat them here. Yes, the Corinthians had heard these things. Paul wants them to hear them again. No doubt it did his heart good to write these things and to give this outline of the most important and basic 
items in the Christian faith. Paul had experienced the power of this truth in his own soul on the road to Damascus. And he never got over it. Have you gotten over it? He couldn't hear it often enough. Do you get tired of hearing it? May it never be. Well, in the fourth place, we need to hear the gospel often to be kept from false doctrine, to be safeguarded in the truth. And this is where the context of the rest of 1 Corinthians 15 comes into play. Just read with me a little bit from verse 12 here. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, that is of believers at the last day, then is Christ not risen. Our resurrection is tied with his. And if we aren't raised up, then that means he's not raised up. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain and your faith is also vain. There's no gospel without a risen Christ. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. There's the inevitable logic and the inevitable connection of those who are in union with Christ. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. And so on. Well, we'll pause the reading there. <clears throat> Paul is clearly building the argument for the sound doctrine concerning the, the resurrection of our body upon the fact of the resurrection of Christ's body. That's the whole argument here. That's his purpose for declaring the gospel in this context. The church at Corinth needed to be strengthened and confirmed in sound doctrine. And I can hardly think of any doctrine of Scripture that does not in some way find strengthening in the very basic truth of the gospel. It's as if Paul says to them, if you had a better understanding of the gospel, you wouldn't be questioning the truth concerning bodily resurrection now. The old illustration is of handling sound currency. If you only handle sound currency, and handle it often, you will detect, they say, a counterfeit bill immediately. If we want to detect and, and reject false doctrine, 
We need to be handling the true doctrine frequently. And fifthly, we need to hear the gospel often because it will keep us forward-focused, forward-looking, anticipating what is yet to come in our experience in resurrection. And as this chapter progresses, he talks more and more about that resurrection at the last day. Let me pick up reading here in verse 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In other words, not all of us will die and be in the grave, but even those who are alive on the earth will be transformed into a glorified body when Christ comes again in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality, and so on. He closes the chapter with these words. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Hearing the gospel reminds us not only of Christ's resurrection, but of our participation with him in glorification and resurrection in glory at the last day. And that gives us a sense of purpose, a sense of looking forward, a sense of what is yet to come, which enables us to continue faithful in the present. And so you you have past, present, and future all represented here. You have looking back at what Christ has done in his death and burial and resurrection and appearances to many And you have the forward look to our resurrection and to be with him forevermore. Conquering the last enemy of death, even in in a bodily way. That in the present then makes us steadfast, unmovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that our labor now is not in vain. These are the benefits of hearing the gospel again and again. I think we could even add some that are not specifically mentioned here in this chapter. I would just mention this. We need to hear the gospel often because it will encourage us all in evangelizing others throughout the week. Yes, we do need to be preaching the gospel Monday through Saturday, wherever we are and with whatever opportunities we have. And hearing it ourselves will encourage us in that. And it it may even be a, a means of instructing us to know what texts to use and and gives us a springboard for conversation with someone to say, this is the message that I heard yesterday about and and here's the gospel <clears throat> and it's there's no limit <clears throat> to how many different texts and passages of scripture from which we can preach the gospel 
it will furthermore encourage us to bring others to church to hear the gospel on the Lord's day. These are all benefits of a gospel ministry. So, you've been very patient. Let me conclude with these words. Christian friend, do you recognize your need to hear the gospel frequently for all these reasons that we've given? I can say this, as for me, I need to hear it. And I need to hear it again and again. It does my soul good. And I need to tell it. I need to declare it. Nothing does my soul more good than to hear or to tell the gospel. And I have no doubt that you are like me. So let us rejoice in hearing the gospel again and again. And again to those who are lost. Consider this. If those who have already believed in Christ need to hear the gospel again and again, how much more do you need to hear it? And to hear it again and again. What great matters of eternal importance hang upon your hearing the gospel and hearing it until you believe it. What will become of your soul if you don't hear the gospel and don't believe it? It is a great privilege to hear the gospel of Christ. It's an even greater privilege to hear it again and again. It's a privilege to hear it once. Many people have not heard it even once. What a great privilege it is to hear it over and over again. Don't let it fall on deaf ears. But hear and believe. Receive it. Stand in it to the saving of your soul.